Well, as you can see, we uh, have our communion table set up this morning, and uh, this is the first Sunday of the month, and this is the, the day our church has set aside to practice Christ's ordinance of communion. And we call it an ordinance because it's something that Christ ordained, it's something that Christ ordered his followers to regularly remember the great sacrifice that Christ made by dying on the cross and enduring God's wrath against sin in our place. And communion is a time of celebration. It's also a time of contemplation. It's a time for self-examination, and it's a time for confession of sin. And normally, I will just read a a brief passage um, that prepares our hearts to take communion together, and after taking communion, we sing, and then I preach the message. Well, we're going to do something a little different this morning, and uh, the message that God has laid on my heart to preach today seems better suited, in my mind, before communion, since there are a few passages in the Bible that should encourage and stimulate self-examination and confession of sin more than the story that we find in Joshua chapter 7, um, of a guy named Achan. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there this morning. And uh, I know that you're uh, going, whoa, we're like, he's already getting to the message, like right now. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but hopefully this will all be preparatory. And uh, when we're done, we'll be able to take communion together. And then we'll be able to respond by singing um, some songs together. And so those of you that are serving communion, stay tuned. You're all ready and poised to come up. Uh, you'll get to come up here in just a little bit and serve communion for us. But Joshua chapter 7, I've been thinking about this story ever since I ran across a quote in the book that the men are reading and discussing together on Friday mornings. The book we're reading is called Maturity, uh, Growing, uh, Growing Up and Going On in the Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson. But there was a quote that I came across and uh, underlined it, and not just underlined it, but highlighted it and uh, put some brackets around and put some asterisks in the margin. And this was the quote. Listen carefully. Sinclair Ferguson said this, secret failure or secret sin would be another way of saying that. Secret sin cannot remain hidden. If we do not deal with indwelling sin, in other words, the sin that continues in our lives as Christians, even though we've been saved and forgiven for our sin, we, we still battle with sin in us. It says, if we do not deal with indwelling sin, it will eventually catch up with us. We may disguise it for a while, but we will lack the perseverance to do so permanently. One day, our spiritual failure or sin will become clear. Now, that is a solemn reality based on a number of warning verses in the scriptures, a verse that was drummed into my mind and heart as a little kid by my mom was Numbers 32, 23, which says, be sure your sin will find you out. That's a great mom verse, by the way, right? My mom would just love walking around the house, and every time I got caught in some kind of sin, she'd love quoting that one to me. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Well, I'm thankful that I had a mom, a godly mom that knew the scriptures and would would quote these verses to me. Since then, there's a number of other verses that I've come across as I've studied God's word. Proverbs 10, 9, he who walks with integrity walks securely but he who perverts his way will be found out. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus said, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And by the way, the reason why all this is true is what, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him 
with whom we have to do. In other words, God sees everything we do, even the things that we do in secret that no one else sees. Well, the principle that is taught in these verses is vividly illustrated for us in this incident that occurred during Israel's conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And here in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua recounted the only defeat that Israel ever suffered while conquering the Canaanites. And the defeat was caused by a sin that was secretly committed and covered up by one of the Israelites. And so we have here a sobering sketch of the serious consequences of of secret sin that should make us all fearful of sinning and trying to cover it up. The story of Achan unfolds in six scenes. And so we'll look at these six scenes together as we walk our way through this chapter. The first scene is the disobedient soldier. The disobedient soldier. Look at verse 1. Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the son from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now as is common with Hebrew narrative, Joshua began by giving a a brief overview or summary of the story of Achan in verse 1 and then followed it up with a detailed explanation in the rest of the chapter. But notice he begins with the word but here, which directs us back to the previous chapter. You just read verse 1 and you realize you just kind of uh, came in on some story here that that there's a backstory. And sure enough, if you go back uh, in... um, into chapter 6, you see the backstory. Israel had just experienced a miraculous victory over Jericho, unlike anything they'd ever seen before. God told them to march around the city seven days in a row, and on the seventh day, as you remember, according to God's command, they marched around Jericho seven times, and on the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets, and the army shouted, and the walls came tumbling down, as the song goes, right? We all sang when we were little kids in Sunday school, and they entered the city, and they utterly destroyed every living thing, and then set the city on fire. Now, before they had gone in to conquer Jericho, God had given them very specific instructions not to take anything for themselves. Notice in chapter 6, verse 17, the Lord said, The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So this, all of this stuff that they were uh, seeing there, that they would see when they conquered Jericho, was under the ban, if you will. That's the words that God used there. They, they would have the privilege of pillaging every other city after this one, but since this was the first city that they conquered in the Holy Land, everything was holy unto the Lord. Everything belonged to Him. These, this was to serve, these, these things were to serve as the first fruits that they were to offer to the Lord. And so they were to take all that stuff and bring it to the temple because it belonged to the Lord. And in the midst of all the commotion of collecting everything made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and carrying it to the treasury of the Lord, a man by the name of Achan took some of the items that he found and he kept them for himself. Again, we read the verse, chapter 7, verse 1, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. 
For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Achan deliberately disobeyed God's clear command, and it made God angry. Not just with Achan, but with the entire nation. And as we go through these scenes, I want to just point out to you some implications or applications. What what is the implication here from verse 1? Well, number one, it makes God angry when we disobey Him. It makes God angry when we disobey Him. How about this? Number two, God takes sin seriously and often punishes it severely. I think if we were honest, we don't hate sin as much as God does, do do we? We we tend to treat our sin lightly. It's not that big of a deal to us. And I think this is just a much needed reminder of the seriousness of sin. Another implication is that there's, there's no such thing as a personal, private sin. Our, our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone else involved in our lives. And, and when we sin, we're not just hurting ourselves. We're hurting everyone we love or who loves us. And we need to take that into account before we, we give in to temptation. I think knowing all of this should should serve as a powerful incentive for us to live a holy and pure life that is free from acts of deliberate disobedience to the clear commands of God. And so we move from the disobedient soldier to the disrupted mission. That's the second scene, the disrupted mission. Look at what it says in verses 2 through 5. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabiram and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua's pattern, if you know anything about the book of Joshua and the, the conquest of Canaan, his, his pattern was pretty clear. He would send spies to check out the situation ahead of them, whatever that was, and so he did that here uh, in Ai so he could determine the best course of action to defeat that particular city. And so when the spies returned from Ai, they had a very positive report, and since the city was so much smaller and, 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 and harder to defend than Jericho was, they didn't think it was necessary for the entire army to be sent up to fight the people of Ai, and so they recommended to Joshua, hey, just send up a few thousand guys. It's just going to be easy. And so Joshua took their advice and sent up only 3,000 men. And to their shock and shame, they suffered a demoralizing defeat. About 36 soldiers, Israeli soldiers, were killed. And notice the end of verse 5. It says, so the hearts of the people, and that's talking about the Israelis, the hearts of the Israelites melted and became as water. That used to be the other way around. Everybody else, it was the Canaanites, it was the Amorites whose hearts were melting. Chapter 2, verse 11, when we heard it, this is Rahab uh, confessing to the spies that she harbored in her home. She said, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So word had gotten out about the Israelites and their God and how he would fight for them. 
chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. And that was the Israelites' hearts who were melting. They were the ones who were trembling in their boots. It wasn't meant to be that way. Up to this point, everything had gone like clockwork. They were making progress in in conquering the land of Canaan just as God had promised. But their progress was abruptly and dramatically interrupted. Something had gone wrong. Was, was that bad intel that, that Joshua had gotten from his spies? What, what happened? Well, I think it's interesting to, to note here, there is no indication that Joshua sought the Lord's counsel in prayer before sending those soldiers up to Ai. If he had, God would have surely revealed to him the need to confront sin in the camp and clean out the sin that was there before he attacked Ai. What's more, God already had a brilliant strategy in mind to defeat the city of Ai. And you can find that strategy in chapter 8, that they were to set up an elaborate ambush using the entire army. But Joshua didn't know that because he didn't go before the Lord. And this wasn't the only time that Joshua and Israel got into trouble by not seeking the Lord. Remember in chapter 9, um, some guys showed up uh, with um, worn-out sandals and rotten food, and they said, oh, hey, we've come from you know, hundreds of miles away, and we heard about you and your great God, and, and uh, we just wanted to have you sign a peace treaty with us because we want to be your friends, and uh, we know what you'll do to us if we don't do this. And so uh, they thought, okay, well, look at, the, look at their sandals. They're, they're clearly worn out, and look at their food. It's, it's clearly spoiled, and so they must have been you know, traveling for many days now, and so they signed a peace treaty. And it actually says in chapter 9, Verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Well, guess what? The next day they came around the corner and there were the Gibeonites. They'd been tricked. They'd been deceived. And now they couldn't kill them, which was God's desire his, his, his design to, for them to go in and to wipe out all the Canaanites. Why? So they wouldn't be a source of temptation, foreign women, foreign idols, whatever. Uh, they wouldn't lead the Israelites astray. And now they, they had to let them remain. What are some implications for us? Well, I think number one is we must never rely solely on our own wisdom, strength, or experience. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And so we need to continually depend on the Lord for victory and must always guard against relying on our past victories. Typically, we suffer the most humiliating defeats when we are overconfident. Another verse my mom loved to quote to me was, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before a fall. I was a cocky little kid, and uh, my mom was constantly reminding me that um, you're going to do a face plant here if you act that way and think that way. Pride goes before destruction. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, if any man thinks he stand, take what? Heed lest he fall. I found it to be true in my life, you probably have experienced this yourself, that oftentimes the greatest temptations and moral failures come immediately following a great victory. I'll never forget a guy, uh, pastor, sharing uh, years ago that the times he was most tempted to sin were when he was traveling back from some camp or retreat or some conference where the Lord had greatly used him 
that's when he found himself the weakest and most open to temptation. Another implication is we must never underestimate the power and strength of our enemy. Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Another implication here is that sometimes sin has delayed results. In other words, there wasn't an immediate um, consequence for Achan. As we'll see, he had time to, to hide that and maybe days went by before the consequences. It may, it may take days, it may take months, it may take even years before we experience the consequences of our sin. But we need to remember what it says in Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Some of the seeds that we plant, some of the decisions, the bad decisions that we make, take a while to germinate. They take a while to sprout. They may lie latent underneath the surface of our lives for a long time, but they'll eventually break through to the surface and will reap a bitter harvest. Another implication, again, simple here, sin always disrupts our spiritual progress and success. God grants us success when we obey him. If you remember the opening promise that God gave to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success Wherever you go, this book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. So we see the disrupted mission there. Thirdly, the third scene is the distressed leader. The distressed leader, notice verse, verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So this tearing of their clothes, this throwing dust on their heads and falling on the ground in front of the ark of the Lord, this was an ancient rite of mourning. This was, this was a common way of expressing deep sorrow and humiliation. And then notice the, the questions that, that Joshua asked God. And, and, and some very, he made some very bold statements here. Verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua's words seem very familiar or similar to what the rebellious Israelites said while they were wandering around the wilderness. Remember that? When they didn't have any food and they're like, well, great, would you bring us out here to die in the wilderness for God? We'd be better off back in Egypt. In Numbers 14, when they when they uh, sent the spies into the promised land for the first time and they came back and they said, they're like, they're like giants and we're like grasshoppers. And the people began to, began to grumble and complain, and to, complain to, to, to Moses and to Aaron and, and ultimately to God. Oh, great, you just brought us out here to, to kill us in the wilderness. However, we have to believe, I have to believe based on what we know of the character of Joshua, this, this, was, this prayer was not an expression of unbelief like it was for the Israelites. When they said these kind of things, they, they, just, they had no faith. And, and God accused them of unbelief. He confronted their unbelief. 
This is more of a prayer, an expression of despair. Joshua was, was, was not complaining about God. He was complaining to God. And, and yet at the same time, it, it seems that he's attributing their defeat to God's sovereign design. In other words, is this, God, is this some kind of cruel joke? You, you kind of tricked us into coming in here saying we were going to have victory and we we're going to conquer everybody and, and all of a sudden we go up against this little town called Ai and boom, they, you know, they, they, they whip us and, and our soldiers run back with their tail between their legs. I think there's a simple implication here and that is this, that we must never blame God for our sin. We must never blame God for our sin. James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Sometimes we think, well, God, you made me this way. You knew that this was a temptation. Why did you let me give into this? And again, we're, we're shifting blame, right? We're, we're, we're Adam in the garden, this woman that you gave me, God, right? We want to... We hang our sin on God as if it's his fault. We can't do that. Well, look at the fourth scene. We'll call this the displeased God, the displeased God. Notice verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken, even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. In essence, God told Joshua, hey man, get up and quit your whining. This is not a time to pray. This is a time to act. The defeat at Ai was caused by someone's sin in the camp. And so he gave Joshua an ultimatum here. He said, you either remove the sin or I'll remove my presence. And if you remember, before Joshua led Israel into Canaan, God had encouraged him by promising to be with him. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Even in chapter 6, verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Well, here in chapter 7, God was threatening to withdraw that presence so that Joshua and Israel would have to go it alone. And while it might be easy to overlook, this, this was one of the darkest hours in Israel's history. And if they had refused to deal with the sin in their midst so that God's anger was turned away from them, they, they would have been abandoned or even destroyed here. Notice verse 13, rise up, God says, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you remove the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning when you shall come near by your tribes, then you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel." So God just explained to Joshua exactly how he wanted him to deal with the problem. They were to consecrate themselves before God, which was another way of saying they were to renew their commitment to the covenant that they had made to God to obey him in all of their ways. 
And as they did that, or when they did that, God would providentially disclose who had sinned. And this would be through the process of elimination using lots. And lots were like throwing dice or drawing straws. There were some objects that they would either throw out or, or, or choose. Um, but this was not just random chance here. God providentially controlled the outcome of these lots. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Again, what are some of the implications here for us? Well, number one, our sin cuts us off from the presence of God. It impedes our relationship with the Lord. When we sin, we forfeit the power of God. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know there's nothing more crucial to our existence as believers than the presence and the power of God. And we know that it's true, Isaiah 59, 2, when God said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, our sin messes up our relationship with God. And it's not that God doesn't hear us, but he chooses not to respond to us if we're harboring some sin in our heart and then asking him on the side, hey, can you do this for me? Can you do this and this? And the whole time we're hiding sin. Here's an implication. God withholds his blessing from us until we get rid of the sin in our lives and make things right with him and other people. We'll never experience God's joy, God's peace, His comfort, His power unless we confess and repent of our sin. Psalm 32 would be a great cross-reference where David had hid sin for a year, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder. And he finally came clean before the Lord, and this is what he wrote in Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a great testimony of a man who knew what it was like to sin and try to cover it up for a year. And then God finally had to send the prophet Nathan to confront him. But once he was confronted, he confessed. And once he confessed, he experienced the forgiveness of God and the joy and the peace and the comfort that comes with being restored in your relationship with God. The fifth scene we could call the discovered sinner, the discovered sinner, and notice how Joshua carefully followed God's plan to expose the culprit who had caused Israel all this trouble. Verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He, br he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. I'm sure as the laser beam of God's omniscience... <laughs> 
zeroed in on Achan, his heart pounded faster and faster. Can you imagine? Achan knew the jig was up. It was going down. There was nowhere to hide anymore. He was going to be exposed. And as he stood there face to face with Joshua, verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. To me, this is so tender. This is so fatherly. And, and this is so God-centered. Notice, he's saying, hey, you need to give glory to God here. You need to give him praise. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but confession... When we confess our sin to God, that glorifies God, that honors God, that praises God. Because what you're saying is, God, I agree with you that what I did was wrong, that you are right and true and wise and holy, and I'm not. And so I love how Joshua coaxes him to come clean here. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua and said, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them and behold, they were concealed, or they, excuse me, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Achan knew he had no other choice but to confess. And we learn a lot about the process of temptation and sin from Achan's confession. Notice how he described what happened. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, uh, uh, more like a coat, from Shinar and, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He saw, he coveted, he took, and then he hid. Which is exactly how sin got its start in the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, so she saw, she coveted, and then it says she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate it. And then what did they do? They went and hid. Same three verbs used here in Genesis 3, used here in Joshua 7. I know you ladies uh, just finished reading through The Envy of Eve, that book on coveting, and the, based on the conversations I've had with my wife about what she was learning through uh, that study, this is the process. You see, you covet, you take, and you hide. You see, you covet, you take, you hide. You see, you covet, you take, you hide. It's the same pattern that David followed when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he was up on his roof in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. He saw something. He coveted it. He wanted it. He took it. And then what did he do? He hid it. So you've got Adam and Eve, you've got Achan, you've got David. I think all of these incidents 
perfectly illustrate the process of sin and temptation that, that is outlined for us in the New Testament, in the book of James. James 1, 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what are some implications here for us? Well, first of all, God gave Achan plenty of time to confess his sin on his own. Just like he often gives us plenty of time to confess our sin. But Achan stubbornly and foolishly waited until he got caught before he confessed. And he, he probably would have never admitted it otherwise The point is, it's always better to come clean ourselves. Because if if we get if we come clean when we get caught, there's always some suspicion whether or not we're really genuinely sincere about our confession and repentance. Would we be continuing in that sin if we hadn't gotten caught? But when you confess it on your own and you initiate that confession, that's evidence of God's grace that he's breaking you and granting you repentance of that particular sin. How about this implication? Number two, our confession should be totally honest and thorough. Notice how specific Achan is here. He didn't just say, yeah, you know, I sinned and I, I, there was just some stuff I wanted and you know, it's, it, I buried it in a hole under my tent. No, he gets very specific. He's when I saw him on this wool, a beautiful mantle from Shiner and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. <laughs> He's being very specific. Then I coveted them and took them and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent. He could have just said that, yeah, I buried him in my tent. No, he said, with the silver underneath it. He even told him exactly how he had buried it. I say that because I'm aware that typically when I'm confessing sin to someone that that maybe I tend to just confess this much when there's really this much. I think that's the human heart, isn't it? That that's all of our tendencies. we'll, We'll confess just enough to look spiritual, sound spiritual, and make it look like we're we're really seriously about, serious about dealing with our sin when, when really that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so I think it's very helpful to be as specific as possible um, to show that you're serious about dealing with your sin. So be, be totally honest, be totally transparent and, and specific in your confession. Don't just say, hey, you know, uh, I'm sorry I sinned against you. When you're talking to your spouse, for example, say, hey, I, I sinned against you in this way. And, and name the sin or sins that you committed against them. So they know, you're, they, they, they know you get it. That you recognize it and you're, you're serious about repenting of it. I think there's another implication here, and that is this. Sin always begins with dissatisfaction with what God has given to us. Sin always begins with dissatisfaction with what God has given to us. We we begin to to covet what he hasn't given us or what he's given to someone else. And then that oftentimes ends up leading us to taking what doesn't belong to us so we can get what we want. And so we need to to regularly confess those dissatisfactions, how minor, even if the minor ones, they seem so small and insignificant, even those minor dissatisfactions that could eventually break out into open sin. Another implication here is that when we run ahead of God and take matters into our own hands to get what we want, we rob ourselves of God's best. If Achan and only patiently waited and exercised self-control over his sinful desires, he would have had everything he wanted and much more. Because when you get to chapter 8, verse 2, there was no ban after that on the stuff 
of these cities that they were conquering. You shall do to Ahai and his king just as you did to Jericho and his king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle, its plunders for yourselves, set an ambush for the city behind it. So he had every intention of letting them pillage the, 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 uh, the goods of, of these enemy nations. God always gives his best to those who obediently wait on him to provide for them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added unto you as well. Whatever those things might be. The last scene here is the disciplined family. The disciplined family. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. In other words, exactly the way Achan had described it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tents, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day, and all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Achan was guilty of stealing from God and lying about it, and he and his family were disciplined severely for their sin. This is very much like what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, when they sold their piece of property and they gave what they said was all of the proceeds to the Lord. Well, they held back some from them for themselves, which wasn't necessarily wrong to do, but they lied about it. And here in this case, Achan and his entire family were stoned to death, and they, along with everything, I mean everything that they owned, was burned. Now, at first glance, you know, from our vantage point, it seems a little harsh or maybe unfair that Achan's whole family had to suffer the consequences for his sin. In fact, we know according to Jewish law, Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verse 16, it says that children could not be punished for their father's sins, that, that everybody had to be punished for their own sins. Well, if that's the case, we can assume then that Achan's children were just as guilty as he was. And I guess if you consider what it might be like to live in a tent You've been camping and you've all been in the same tent, right? You can't do much of anything without everybody else in the tent seeing what you're doing, right? And so it would have been very difficult for Achan to show up with a bunch of stuff under his, you know, cloak and then dig a hole underneath his sleeping bag, you know, and, and bury some stuff in there without them knowing about it. So they most likely knew that the stuff was buried in their tent, and so they qualified as accomplices to this crime, to this sin. I think it's also important to note that all Israel participated in the discipline of Achan. Why? It wasn't just Joshua and the leaders, it was everybody, because they were all affected by this sin. In, in some sense, they were guilty by association. He was, Achan was one of their own. And so they all needed to be involved in purging the sin from their nation. And so, uh, again, there's some implications here regarding the church, the local church, that there's a solidarity here, that, that one person's sin affects the entire body. We, we know that uh, the church is likened to a body, and that whatever happens to one part of the body, it affects uh, the other, the rest of the body. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
You could also add there, if one member sins, all the members grieve with it. And I think that's why God commands us to not overlook sin within the members of the body of Christ, but to seek to restore those who are knowingly involved in some pattern of unrepentant sin through the process of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We have an example of this in 1 Corinthians. We know that the church in Corinth had all sorts of troubles that Paul had to address. One of those was the sin of incest. There was some members of the church in Corinth who were involved in some incestuous relationship. A, a man had his father's wife. And uh, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. You haven't done anything about it. Your boasting is not good, verse 6. Do you not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. He goes on to talk about not associating with so-called believers if he's immoral, covetous, idolater, or a vile, or a drunk, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you, do you not judge those who are within the church? And of course, with that discipline, when it's effective, when it accomplishes its purpose, you're to restore that person. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, talking about the sorrow that may come upon a person in a church when you have to discipline someone. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, hey, you did a good job, you followed my instruction, you you put that guy out of the church, but he's since repented. Now, now forgive him, have compassion on him, bring him back, reaffirm your love for him. Again, what are the New Testament implications here of Achan chapter, or Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan here? Listen, beloved, God's blessing will remain on this church as long as we take sin seriously. And we faithfully follow the principles that he's laid down for us in his word to discipline and restore those who are living in sin and refuse to admit it or repent of it. But the day we choose to overlook it, to allow sin to continue unchecked, is the day that God's blessing will leave this place. Notice verse 26. Joshua 7, the last verse in this chapter, they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. So on top of the, the charred remains of Achan's household, the Israelites gathered a huge pile of stones that served as a, as a crude memorial so they would never forget the lesson, that tragic lesson that they learned that day. And for generations that followed, that heap of stones stood as a solemn shrine to the consequences of secret sin. And anytime anybody walked past that pile of stones, they'd be reminded that God does not tolerate sin, that his commandments cannot be mocked, that no one can disobey and get away with it. 
If you sin, you'll pay the consequences. I can imagine those were some of the conversations that some of the, the mothers and fathers were having with their little kids as they were walking by and the little kid said, hey, daddy, hey, mommy, what's that big pile of rocks over there? And they would tell them the story. This event made a lasting impression on the Israelites. At the end of this book, Joshua 22, when the tribes who decided to live beyond the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, God gave them the uh, permission to do that. However, when they went home to the east side of the Jordan after conquering the promised land, they went back to their land that they had claimed, and they built their own altar. And the rest of the tribes on the west side of the, the, the Jordan River said, whoa, what's going on? This is rebellion. This is, you're setting up another uh, altar to the Lord. This can't be. And they ran and confronted those tribes. And in chapter 22, verse 18... They said, if you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. Hey, if you guys mess up, he's going to be mad at all of us. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord your, our God. And then this is what they said, verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the man, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. See there, this public punishment of Achan's private sin made them fearful of sinning themselves. We don't want to be guilty of what Achan was guilty of. Because we know what happens. Do you find this story relevant? Applicable? To your life today? I think the Spirit of God enshrined the sin of Achan in the pages of Scripture so that Believers throughout all generations would be afraid of what might happen to them if they sin and try to cover it up. This this story is here for our instruction. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we do not crave evil things as they also craved. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I realize this is a sobering message, and I just kind of came right out with it at the beginning of the service this morning, but let me end with an encouraging note. Back in Joshua chapter 7, I want to focus on something in this story that I purposely skipped over. The name Achan means trouble. In 1 Chronicles 2.7, Achan was called Achar, the troubler of Israel. Here in verse 25, Joshua asked him, why have you brought trouble upon us? And using a play on words, the Israelites named the place where they stoned and burned Achan, the valley of Achor. Notice that in verse 26, you may have a note in your Bible there that translates that word achor as trouble. This was the valley of trouble. But this isn't the end of the story about the valley of trouble. 
because on two occasions, the prophets referred back to the valley of Achor or the valley of trouble with a positive perspective. Isaiah 65.10, the valley of Achor will be a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. Hosea 2.15, then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day where she came up from the land of Egypt. See, when the nation of Israel returned from exile, this valley that had been once associated with shame and defeat was transformed into a place of blessing, a place of mourning turned into a place of singing, a place of defeat turned into a place of victory. And even though Israel had been unfaithful and sinned against God and had been disciplined by the Lord, there was still hope for them. Yes, when Achan sinned, It shattered the momentum of Israel's conquest of the promised land. Gloom and despair hung over the camp like a thick fog. They were demoralized. They were discouraged. They were scared. But God gave them a second chance. Because in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, they ambushed Ai and were victorious. It's the same for us as Christians. When we sin, gloom and despair hang over our lives like a fog and we're demoralized, we're discouraged, we're scared. But at the moment, but at that moment, what we need to realize that one defeat, one failure is not necessarily the end of our usefulness to God. No defeat is permanent. No mistake is beyond remedy. No matter how badly we fail, there is still hope. God is a God of a second chance. Amen? And he gives us the opportunity to get up and start all over again. And when we confess our sin, we repent of it, the slate is wiped clean, and we have a fresh start. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. In other words, you hide your sin, you're not going to prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. This hope of forgiveness for sinners like you, like me, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is, Christ is our door of hope. Why? Because all of us deserve to die and burn. Achan was burned. We deserve to burn for all eternity in hell, but Jesus Christ stepped in and took our punishment by dying on the cross in our place, and God unleashed the fierceness of his anger against our sin on his own son so that we could be forgiven. Are you willing to turn from your sin today? To place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as the only way that you can be made right with God? Tomorrow we're going to celebrate the home going of Sonny Rogers. And one of the things I'll always remember about that guy is He came to know Christ during one of our communion services on a Sunday morning. Because I always say, hey, if you're not a Christian, let these elements pass. But this is an opportunity for you to look around and see all these Christians who are confessing their sin and and, uh, receiving the forgiveness that they have in Christ through his death. And you can be born again this morning if you would confess your sin and He took that to heart, and he prayed to receive Christ as the plates were being passed. That could be your story this morning. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your life of sin and commit your life to follow and obey Jesus Christ. If you already are a Christian, this is a a perfect opportunity to confess maybe some secret sin in your life. 
that you know God knows, but you've not been willing to deal with it and talk to him about it, confess it to him. And there may be someone that your sin has been affecting and they don't even know it. But they should know it. And I would encourage you to make a commitment this morning as we take communion that you're not only going to confess your sin to the Lord, but you're going to confess it to your spouse. You're going to confess it to your parents. You're going to confess it to your grow group leader, your mentor, your discipler, your teacher, your boss. And know that God will forgive you and restore you and give you a fresh start. As I pray, I want to invite the men who are going to serve to come and then when I'm closed in prayer, we can take communion together. Father, thank you for this story that's so helpful um, just to remind us of the subtlety, subtlety of secret sin. And Lord, we all can relate to this story. We've all battle with these kinds of things from time to time in our lives and I pray that you would use our time of communion to um, really do some business in the hearts and minds of everyone here this morning. You have providentially brought every soul that is here today sitting under the teaching of your word, the story of Achan for a reason. We know your word doesn't return void, so would you accomplish your purposes in each of our hearts? And Lord, as we confess our sin and mourn over our sin, may we also rejoice um, and receive the peace and the comfort that comes from Christ, that only comes through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.